Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 29. As always, if you have questions that you want me to answer, send them to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's Michael with a K or through the Facebook Messenger widget on the website scientifictriathlon.com. Before we get into today's questions, a big thanks as usual to our sponsors, Roka. Roka are the world leaders in wetsuits, trisuits, and other triathlon and swim apparel. It started out as a garage mission to make the world's fastest wetsuit and has now grown into making triathlon apparel and endurance sports apparel in general, like trisuits, swim skins, buoyancy shorts, goggles high-performance eyewear that can actually be customized and uh, designed for your individual desires. All of Roka's products are a result of really heavy investment in research and development, and they are really focusing on making everything the top of the class when it comes to performance for us endurance athletes. So go and check them out on roca.com. As you've heard, Roca now also ships from uh, Europe and the United Kingdom. So that is great news for all European customers. No more import taxes and duties when we order here. And even more great news, as you are probably aware of by now, is that you can get 20% off your entire order when you use the promo code TTS, all caps. Big thanks also to Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. And the Precision Hydration, they make electrolytes that you can tailor to your individual uh, sweat sodium content and sweat losses so that you get a strategy for hydration that is based on you as an individual because hydration is so, so uh, individual and uh, electrolytes and electrolyte losses and needs. We talk about that at length with uh, with Andy Blow in the first interview I did with him back in episode 49. So go and check that out if you haven't already. It's really useful information in general about about hydration and electrolytes, no matter which products you use for that. So definitely worth checking out. But to make it easy on you, just go to precisionhydration.com and take their free online sweat test. And that will give you an individual hydration strategy that is uh, tailor-made for you how much electrolytes you lose in your sweats. And then you can try your first box for free with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. All right, so let's get into today's first question, which is from Patrick Jill in Michigan, the United States. Uh, Patrick writes, Hi Michael, I'm 57 years old and have been training since last fall for an upcoming half Ironman. I'm in good shape and have my weight down. My question for you is in regards to running and training zones. Today on my long run training with lots of rolling hills, I ran uh, 10.3 miles for a duration of 1 hour 34 minutes. I spent 8 minutes in zone 3, 1 hour 14 minutes in zone 4 and 12 minutes in zone 5. My question for you is this, is it a bad or a good thing to be in zone 4 for that much of the run? Zone 4 just seems to be where my heart rate naturally settles in. My average heart rate for the run was 147 beats per minute. I love your podcast and thanks for giving any insights on this for me. Thanks Patrick for the question. So uh, let's uh, try to uh, try to dig a bit deeper here. I'm going to assume that this long run was meant to be 
just a, a normal easy aerobic endurance, your long, slow distance type of run, uh, where you would want to limit your intensity zone to zone two. That is the recommendation that I'm sure you've heard as well, and probably one of the reasons that you're asking this question. Uh, and as we can see here, your heart rate is uh, pretty much never in zone two, or or never really. It immediately jumps up to zone three, and then for the majority of the run, it is in zone four. Uh, but this is where uh, I guess you need to assess how you determine your heart rate zones. Because depending on how you assess them, you will can get uh, slightly different results. And in some cases, you can get very different results. It's uh, rarer, but it happens. So for example, it could be based on a 20-minute test or a 30-minute test, or it could be based on your maximum heart rate. So there are different protocols for determining your zones. And keep in mind that no matter how you determine it, if it's a field test like any of these or even max heart rate, uh, then uh, it does mean that you are working with estimates. They're all estimates and each individual is, uh, well, an individual. So, so it's not going to be perfect for, for anybody. In an ideal world, and probably I would recommend, especially for you, Patrick, and others that struggle with this problem of not being able to keep a zone 2 heart rate, go and get a lactate test done. That way you will get training zones that are truly your own and that you can have you can have good confidence in. Because let's say, for example, that you did a 20-minute test and maybe you didn't get your uh, your absolute maximum out of yourself that day, so that made your average heart rate for that 20 minute test a bit lower than it could have been which also means that your zones are a bit lower than they should be and that's an example of how things can can go wrong and and if you use the maximum heart rate uh, method for determining well that's uh, it can be good if you have a fairly good handle or a very good handle of what your maximum heart rate is it doesn't matter if it's one or two or even three beats per minute off but but you should be within three beats per minute of knowing your true maximum heart rate to use that but then the, the problem with that method is that it's still based on percentages of that max heart rate and these are good on average on a population level but they're not perfect so so for you patrick and others with this same problem a heart rate uh, a lactate test where you can get your individual zones would definitely be the best way to go uh, that said, what you can do before that is if you, for example, have based your zones currently on a 20-minute test, let's say, then try to see what happens if you just use your maximum heart rate for running and uh, and use that to see assess what your zones would be instead. So, for example, in a five-zone system, we can estimate that the top of zone two, that would be 75% of your maximum heart rate. So, if your maximum heart rate is 197, then that 137 beats per minute that you got as an average for that run, that would be right on top of that, at the, at the top of zone two. So in that case, maybe it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that much too hard. Uh, that said, at 57 years old, it's quite unlikely that your maximum heart rate is 197. But, uh, who knows? It, it could be. It's not impossible. It's not unheard of. So, but either way, uh, if you have done, for example, a 20 minute test or you have done the maximum heart rate, try the other approach and see if you get very different results from, from that other approach in terms of your zones. And potentially that other approach might work better, be more accurate for you. Uh, now to your question, whether it's bad that you're at that amount of time in zone four 
and let's assume here that your heart rate zones are more or less correct well it is definitely far from ideal it indicates that even at low intensities you are producing more energy than necessary through anaerobic processes uh, you're producing a lot of lactate and this means that it will burn through your available energy much much quicker than if you could be more aerobic it also means that even though a your run doesn't necessarily feel very hard because this is very common that you your heart rate just is high it's in zone four but you don't feel that you're working that hard that's very common Uh, but it still means that you just won't recover from it quite the same and you might not feel the difference but but it's still that's just what happens on an autonomic nervous system level your recovery will be much much slower compared to if you had stayed in that zone two sort of range. And there is uh, very interesting research in this area that's been coming out in recent years. I'll link to to one paper uh, in, in the show notes, actually by Steven Seiler's group. And Steven Seiler is about to come on the podcast very soon. So, so that's interesting. That will be interesting to hear more from him, not necessarily on this topic, because I don't think we'll have time. Either way, uh, the point is that you, even though you feel that it's easy work, it will impact your recovery and your ability to perform in the coming workouts. So essentially, if we talk a little bit more about physiology, then your your aerobic threshold or your LT1, your first lactate threshold, or your VT1, ventilator, first ventilatory threshold, they're all more or less the same thing. They would sit right around the top of, of zone two. And uh, that sort of, those thresholds or that threshold, it acts almost like a binary switch so that if you remain below this threshold uh, your recovery is quick even for long workouts of course this depends a bit on your training status if you're a complete beginner then even at the low intensity uh, a one-hour run is going to be require a lot of recovery uh, but in general uh, but when you go above that that first threshold it doesn't really matter how much you go about it uh, go above it uh, the difference might be so let's say that you're at 1.5 millimoles of lactate when you're below your that first threshold and then you go above it a little bit into zone 3 or low zone 4 and you're at 2.5 millimoles of lactate. Uh, so so that would be like still a fairly moderate amount of lactate. It It is still very similar to be at 2.5 millimoles of lactate compared to what uh, the recovery would be from a 7 millimole per lactate type of hit session, high intensity interval training session. Uh, and that's quite fascinating to to see actually the impact of that sort of, I guess, gray zone training. And it's not it does, doesn't mean that that zone isn't useful to use at times. But in these long runs, in these aerobic endurance runs, when you specifically want to try to work on your aerobic endurance, you you do want to stay below that first threshold. So stay in that very low lactate range, and and the proxy for that for you would be to stay in your heart rate zone two. So uh, that's one more reason to go and get that lactate test. But but if you don't, then you just need to work with the estimates that you have and and work, find a way to make sure that you can stay in zone two. So because if we talk a little bit more about this uh, recovery aspect, it's uh, if every time you go out for a run like this and and or even just a run in general, every time you go out for a run, you end up in in zone four heart rate. Uh, that run is going to stress the autonomic nervous system in a similar manner to a hit session, a high-intensity interval training session. And you can understand then that you're really breaking 
from the perspective of the nervous system at least, one of the most important rules of endurance training, doing the easy training easy. You're essentially going hard every day. Again, it may feel easy to you, but the way that your nervous system especially handles it is through much more demanding processes uh, that do require more recovery. So you should definitely start to work on lowering your heart rate, yes. And again, I strongly recommend a lactate test as a first step to get your true individual thresholds figured out. And then you just have to start to be very diligent with running slower so that you stay at or below that first threshold in your easy runs. And it may feel very uncomfortably slow at first, but the good news is that if you are persistent, then adaptations will take place within weeks so that uh, we will start to be able to run a bit more comfortably. And in a few more weeks, maybe a couple of months, you might be able to do that sort of zone two heart rate at what feels like normal running again. One option is to insert walk breaks in your runs to keep your heart rate down and keep it from shooting up too much. Uh, But uh, it's, uh, yeah, so that's something that you can play around with. Uh, And also to make it a bit easier on you, try to do your runs in not too hot temperature conditions and to avoid caffeine before, just so that you reduce the influence of of other factors that can, uh, can impact heart rate. So I hope this helps Patrick and good luck. The next question is from Shai, and I don't know where Shai is from, but uh, he writes, Hi Michael, I listen to your podcast regularly and find it interesting. In episode 169, you interviewed Sebastian Weber. It was a fascinating episode, and on one of the questions he said that he doesn't recommend the LCHF, low-carb, high-fat approach to most recreational athletes, and even for pros, only to, to very few specific ones. Uh, You also mentioned on several episodes that you don't recommend this diet. I have been experimenting with it in the past two months, uh, where before races or hard sessions, I add more carbs the night before and in the morning. The main benefit I find with this diet is I managed to lose additional four four additional kilograms, and I wasn't fat when I started it, probably around 10 to 12% body fat. Whereas on a conventional restricted caloric diet, I was in a constant battle and managed to lose barely half this weight. Two months is a very short time frame, so I cannot say much beyond the weight loss. But I do feel that when most of my carbs come from vegetable, which I don't limit, I managed to lose the additional weight quite easily. And I'm not, I'm not at the end of the road yet. With strategic carb loading, I managed to get to races with my glycogen stores full. I try to do my easy runs in the mornings on an empty stomach. And sometimes I go for moderate intensity exercises fasted. I didn't do hard sessions fasted yet, but this is something I thought of experimenting with in the future. What is your opinion on this approach? Thanks, Shai. Okay, Shai, so uh, the first thing that I would say is that if it works for you, then there's no reason for changing it. Uh, nutrition is individual, so just because I recommend something to not generally be the best way to go that doesn't mean that it's not a good way to go for the individual just like sebastian said that with some pros they do use a low carb high fat approach Uh, it's you can compare it a bit to to pharmacology Uh, i'm a bit interested in that since i used to work in medical devices Uh, so in in that industry there are drugs that are prescribed for certain conditions because they have been researched and proven to work for a significant proportion of the population and they have a measurable and clinically relevant effect size. But that does not mean that these drugs work for everybody. 
And uh, what I worked for specifically in medical devices was a device for depression. So I studied depression in general quite a lot and, and mental health in, in general as well. And that field is notorious for patients having to try two, three, four, even five different drugs before finding something that works. And it isn't because the drugs are bad or don't work, but it's just that they don't work for everybody the same way. Uh, so, so what you have in medicine then is that you have your first line treatments and they are the treatments that are the most likely to work for the patient. And then you have second line and third line and so on, depending on whether uh, the patient gets uh, a good response from that first line treatment or not. And in endurance sports nutrition, to uh, to close down this analogy, uh, the evidence that we have today is very clearly showing that LCHF should not be a first-line approach to nutrition. A healthy, uh, unprocessed food-based varied diet that contains a good amount of protein, carbs, and fats should be the first-line treatment. And But however, if you feel that that doesn't work for you for some reason, then, then you can try LCHF as a second-line protocol. It is quite important, of course, to define what success is for you. And you seem to measure it in terms of weight loss, and, and that's fine, I guess. Uh, but uh, just keep in mind that if you are already at 10% body fat, maybe weight isn't the primary limiter for you, but actually be, being more focused on performance would be what, what I would do in, in your shoes. Uh, so so just in, in that situation, what I would really focus on is to just make sure that you get to your full potential, you get your full potential out of you in your hard, intense workouts. And uh, what you do great here is that you do uh, load up on carbs before those hard workouts. So, so I like that. You, you sort of periodize it. And that's, that's great. So uh, it, it reduces the risks of you arriving to those workouts very glycogen depleted, which would probably limit how much you could get out of yourself in those workouts, especially the really, really intense ones. Uh, because this is a fact and uh, it is not often misunderstood uh, because of pseudoscience and bro science and what have you. But, but when you go above threshold and you are burning carbs no matter what your diet is, it, it doesn't matter how quote-unquote fat-adapted you are, you are going to be burning carbs as soon as you, you cross your anaerobic threshold and, and a lot of them. And then if you don't have enough carbs on board, you are producing less power and you're having a less effective workout with less training response and adaptations as a consequence so i'm not i'm not saying that you're doing this because you are uh, taking carbs before workouts but in general this is a big risk that i see with lchf that people underperform in intense workouts and they might not even feel it because it might feel like all out and it is all out but it's just not as high an output whether it's pace power uh, etc as people could have had if they would just have been a bit more fueled up and had those glycogen stores on board so so it can make a big difference especially when you have plenty of those workouts or a, a longer longer build from an endurance performance perspective if we look at it that way in general again not looking at you individually but just whether it should be a first line or second line treatment to go back to that analogy uh, then there's really no no argument that uh, having carbs as a very regular like a mainstay in your diet is better than the alternative not having them uh, we know this from all studies that have directly compared uh, high carb and low carb diets have found that the performance is better when you have a high carb diet uh, now the argument that uh, 
I'm training for an Ironman, I need to improve my fat oxidation. That will come up for sure. But uh, remember that, and we've talked about this before on the podcast as well, uh, 90% or more of your fat oxidation comes down completely to how you train, no matter whether you eat candy all day or, I don't know, eggs and fish oil all day. Uh, so, so 90% is still going to come down to training. And one of the keys to that training piece of the puzzle is uh, what we talked about in the first question today, actually. So doing your long, slow distance slow enough and uh, not going above that aerobic threshold in, in those easy runs. And this way you will rely on primarily fat oxidation, but you'll still burn some carbs, of course, but regardless of diet. So, so that's one of the main reasons for the importance of intensity control and intensity discipline. But another part, and uh, this is perhaps even more relevant, is uh, that the higher your VO2 max, your aerobic capacity, then the higher your fat oxidation is going to be. They, they correlate. So what is a good way to increase your VO2 max? Well, high-intensity interval training. So that's, again, it comes down to the fact that you need to be able to perform in those high, very intense sessions to, to see those improvements and uh, and if you restrict carbs you are potentially limiting yourself and underperforming in those intense workouts so by restricting carbs you may actually limit your improvements in in fat oxidation because you're putting a limit on how much you can improve your vo2 max so that is the opposite of what what you intended and again not talking about you shy but in general here so so going back to the performance and the studies I just saw on Twitter the, the results from the Supernova 2.0 study that from the Australian Institute of Sport. Uh, and this is one of the few projects where they have actually compared different diets against each other in terms of performance. So, so how well you perform in, in an endurance race. And they did uh, two races. There are two groups, that uh, one on a high-carb diet and one on a low-carb, high-fat diet. And, and they did two 10,000 meter races and then uh, a 20 kilometer race. And this was race walking. Uh, and, uh, and in the first, from the first race to the second race, uh, the, the high carb group, they increased, uh, sorry, reduced their time. So they got faster by around about one minute. Whereas the, the low carb high fat group, they got slower by around about a minute and a half. Uh, so that that wasn't good, and and then what they did for the twenty kilometer race was that they compared uh, what was the percentage how how what was the percentage of time that it took them compared to the first uh, the baseline ten kilometer race before these groups got on 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 those diets before the actual testing protocol, and for the high carb group they performed uh, that twenty kilometer race at. Uh, uh, again, after the intervention, after the uh, the high carb diet protocol, uh, 191% of the time of the first 10 kilometer race, whereas the the second the low carb high fat group they did the 20 kilometer race at 197% of their baseline race, so they didn't get to as close, they, they didn't get down. Their pace was slower compared to the baseline race, is what I should say. Uh, so, so even the, the argument that the longer the race goes on, the better LCHF becomes, 
didn't seem to stand up to scrutiny. And this, I'll link to this. This is a tweet from a slide from a presentation. So, so it's not really, it's not published yet. I, I think it's still in review, uh, but it's, uh, it's one of the biggest studies that has been conducted on the topic. So, so I think it's, uh, worth including a sneak peek of it, of it here. And again, I'll link to the tweet in the episode description. From a weight loss perspective, just quickly, research, research shows very clearly that if you control for your protein intake and your overall caloric intake, then it doesn't matter if the, cal- the rest of the calories come from carbs or fat uh, in terms of weight loss. It could be 70% fat or 70% carbs, and, and it really comes down to calories in, cal- calories out, uh, and when you control for protein and, and calories. And some of the most satiating foods available, according to the satiety index, uh, which is a scientifically validated index, are actually very carb-rich foods, typically fiber-rich foods. So potatoes, I think, are number one. Beans is very high on beans are very high on the list as well, and it's a personal favorite of mine. Uh, you mentioned vegetables; they are, of course, also very high up, and they are carbs, not fat. Other legumes are also high on the satiety index, as well as quinoa and and oatmeal so there are plenty of garbage foods that are very uh, satiating as well so so i don't think that i think that if you find that you get too hungry on a high carb diet it might just be that you're not eating the right carbs but to wrap up it is individual some individuals do see better performance or weight loss on lchf so maybe that's you and uh, since you're doing fine then by all means go for it uh, just make sure that your performance is also improving. Don't get uh, too hung up on on just the weight. You you need to if you want to improve performance, that is, and make sure that that performance is improving. So uh, yeah, that that would be my my takeaway, I guess. And to all listeners, just consider what is the first line treatment for you and try that first. And if that doesn't work, then go to the second line treatment. Don't do something just because it's trendy. And also, especially when it comes to nutrition, you should be very critical about the information that you read and hear in this area, as there's no area where there's so much hype without evidence backing flying around and uh, a lot of pseudoscience uh, with uh, maybe out-of-context research findings as well to be used as quote-unquote proof that certain diets work. So yeah, just be critical of uh, of everything you you read and hear also including this episode uh i hope that i didn't make any factual mistakes here i think not but uh but it definitely pays to you shouldn't just blindly trust this either you should get some backing go and look what some top nutritionists are and and nutrition researchers are are doing and saying so yeah that's uh, that's something that's very important because it is easy to get caught up in a media hype especially in nutrition All right, that wraps it up for today. Uh, Remember to keep sending in the questions. They're really great and I enjoy getting them. A link in the episode description to that uh, research paper on the autonomic nervous system recovery uh, after exercise and uh, the sort of binary effects when you go above the first lactate threshold. And also to that tweet that I mentioned with the findings from the Supernova 2.0 study comparing the LCHF and high-carb diets. Big thanks to Precision Hydration. Go to precisionhydration.com and take their free online sweat test to get your individual race hydration strategy. And use the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps, to get your first box for free. And big thanks to Roka for sponsoring the show. 
you can go to roca.com and check out their range of wetsuits, dry suits, swim skins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear, and get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.